Welcome back to the Big Amateurism Monologues. My name is Richard Ford, and I'm your host. Just a real quick reminder that all of my podcast materials can be found at my podcast website, and that is bigamateurism.com. You can also check out my blog, which I started about three years ago. And the name of the blog is cagerredux.com. That's C-A-G-E-R-R-E-D-U-X.com. Okay, today is September 16th, 2021, and we're going to continue our discussion about Carol Cartwright's referral letter in this NC State infractions and enforcement case. And I went through a couple of the factors that are relevant to whether a case can be referred to this new independent accountability resolution process. And today I want to talk about two others, actually three others. And these are really important because this, I think, goes to the heart of the environment that existed when the NCAA and Carol Cartwright and the Committee on Infractions and the Knight Commission on Intercollegiate Athletics were on their high horse about all of this corruption in college basketball and in the relationship of college basketball to the big shoe and apparel companies and something needed to be done immediately, immediately. There was an enormous amount of public pressure because of the public profile of the criminal cases for the NCAA to do something and do something quickly and do it aggressively and do it decisively. Those sentiments are well-founded within the fantasy world that existed in 2018 to June of 2021, that all of this corruption was somehow compromising the sacred principles of amateurism and the student athlete and the collegiate model and the integrity of college sports. One of the things, and I've mentioned this in the last several episodes, I'm going to keep reinforcing this because I don't think that we've made the transition into the post-Austin world with the appropriate perspective on how flawed the thinking was before that decision. And We are still combating this powerful values-based dynamic, this normative dynamic that still has us thinking that if a kid receives a penny over the value of his athletic scholarship, then he is a bad actor. And if someone gives him money off the books, then they are bad actors. And that all of those transactions are corrupt transactions. They are only corrupt because of the very existence of the principle of amateurism, which now has very little power. And I just want to keep that framework in mind here. In that regard, I go back and I look at some of the articles that were written around the time of the basketball scandal and the criminal prosecutions and then the NCAA's initial foray into its enforcement and infractions arising from those cases. And you really feel this sense of urgency and this sense of futility and this sense that if something doesn't happen immediately and aggressively in a way that is is different from the way this whole enterprise has operated for decades, then this is really the beginning of the end. But again, all of those narratives are built around the assumption that the thing that we're preserving here is the uh, NCAA's propagandized conceptualization of amateurism. And that has been a false premise all along, which is why I have built this podcast and and my blog as well around the history of college sports and the fact that a lot of these narratives were never legitimate from their very first 
use. And that goes back to the late 19th century and the first half of the 20th century. All of these concepts that have been propagandized into this Norman Rockwell version of the purity of amateur athletics were simply false narratives. And the United States Supreme Court, in the way that it looked at the history of amateurism and the history of college sports, I think really put to bed those myths. But we're not really looking in in any detail about how the Supreme Court actually crafted the context for the case. I did, I don't know, seven episodes on that Austin case the Supreme Court case, heading into oral argument and then after oral argument and then after the decision was released. But I really haven't broken down how the court framed the case. And that's on my list of things to do here. And I may try to mix that in here pretty quickly because I think it's really important because it really forces people in this industry or should force them in people in this industry to step back and say, wait a minute, maybe we had this all wrong all along. And that's not what's happening, I don't think. I think you're still hearing all of this rhetoric that now is not being explicitly framed in terms of protecting amateurism. It's more implicit and tacit. And what's happening now with this Constitutional Committee and the NCAA and then the Knight Commission just came out yesterday with a a set of principles that are designed to reshape college sports. And while they appear to be progressive, what is absent from them, and I'm going to talk about that really on the backside of my discussion about this NC State case, but what's interesting about them is that they do not explicitly reject amateurism or the student-athlete or the collegiate model. And when you look carefully at what they're recommending, recommending. The recommendations aren't new, and the concepts that support them aren't new. And I believe that they still assume the legitimacy of amateurism and the student-athlete and the collegiate model and the integrity of college sports, all these things that now are just being morphed into a quote-unquote new transformative model for college sports. But I don't think that we have honestly reconciled and wrestled with the fundamental assumptions underlying that business model. So we're back to square one in some ways. And that's true with this constitutional committee. I think it's true to a lesser extent now with the Knight Commission. I think the Knight Commission is really trying to remake itself. Whether it can do that successfully remains to be seen. But you still have the same cast of characters coming around back to the same premises and assumptions, and nothing's going to change as long as we have the same people making the same uh, decisions that got us into this mess in the first place. And that goes back to the core of presidential leadership and control of intercollegiate athletics. I just want to say another thing as I'm getting into these next criteria in the Cartwright referral letter, and that is that the way that these principles of amateurism and the student-athlete and the collegiate model have been propagandized Anyone who violates those rules is deemed a cheater. They have committed a crime against amateurism, a crime against the integrity of college sports. And the way that we stigmatize those who have violated NCAA rules, I think, is just as powerful as the way that we stigmatize people who commit violations of criminal law. And those two have been conflated. They were explicitly conflated in this Gatto case. It's now on appeal to the U.S. Supreme Court. And I think that the NCAA has not honestly acknowledged that when they point the finger at an institution or a coach or an assistant coach or a player, they're essentially branding them as criminals. And that, I think, is a really 
important feature of this whole soapbox mentality that you get from the NCAA. And I think it's really important to keep that framework in mind as we transition into an analysis of this Carol Cartwright letter. So let's let's go ahead and start with that. And remember, this referral letter went out on February 14th of 2020. This is after the infractions case against NC State has been put through really almost all of the process in the old bad system, this Committee on Infractions process. And the only thing left to be done at this point under the old system is the hearing itself. And then inexplicably, a week after the NCAA files the final document in the documentation phase of this process, Carol Cartwright, who was overseeing all of these basketball-related cases, as a designee of the Committee on Infractions, an NCAA insider position, she sends this case for referral out to the new independent accountability resolution process. And as I discussed in the last episode, there are seven criteria that are relevant to whether or not a case is suitable for referral. And there's no question that this case was suitable for referral. In fact, by Carol Cartwright's own admission, this is the very type of case that the independent accountability resolution process envisioned when that whole bureaucracy was set up. But looking at these referral factors and how Carol Cartwright analyzes them and presents them to the referral committee is a window into the soul of the National Collegiate Athletic Association. And this memo was not intended for public scrutiny. It's marked confidential. Carol Cartwright drafted it, I believe, assuming that this would not be seen outside of the infractions and enforcement process. And at least on paper and in uh, Bylaw 19 relating to infractions and enforcement, all aspects of this process are supposed to be confidential and private and not revealed to the public. And the criteria, the referral criteria that we're going to talk about today go to that central issue because both the NCAA and Mark Gottfried, the head basketball coach, made public comments that are at the center of two of these important referral criteria. One is the actual or perceived misconduct of the parties, and the other is breaches of confidentiality. And the way that Cartwright treats the public comments made by the NCAA, which was a clear violation of NCAA rules, versus the public comments made by NC State and Gottfried, which they claim also was a clear violation of NCAA rules, is fascinating. Because when the NCAA is out there trying to cement in the public narrative surrounding the infractions and enforcement cases arising from the basketball scandal, she is basically saying that the NCAA can do whatever the hell it wants to do. And she doesn't even mention the NCAA prohibition that's contained in bylaw 19 on the kind of comments, the very comments that the NCAA engaged in this case that were clearly identifiable to North Carolina State University. And then on the flip side of that, she pulls language from that very provision that prohibits the NCAA from speaking publicly about these matters. And then uses that against NC State claiming that they engaged in egregious breaches of confidentiality for doing exactly what the NCAA did, and that was to speak publicly about this case. And 
in her discussion of breaches of confidentiality as they relate to NC State, she even goes so far as to say that NC State could be subject to additional punishment and penalties for the violation of that rule. <laughs> I'm going to read that rule to you in just a bit and then look at how Cartwright treats those two sides of the coin. And it's just breathtaking hypocrisy. And one more thing that's important to note from the outset, and I'm going to talk about this in more detail as I get into Carol Cartwright's actual discussion of the circumstances on the breaches of confidentiality. But she refers to breaches of confidentiality or, or conflates statements made by Mark Gottfried or actually by Mark Gottfried's lawyer after the notice of allegations came out challenging some of the NCAA's procedural interpretations under this new importation rule and conflates that with NC State's response to legitimate public records requests as constituting inappropriate breaches of confidentiality. And it's a really interesting tactic here because Cartwright doesn't cite any statements from NC State itself or from any of its representatives. Maybe there are some, but she doesn't cite to them. And she does talk about the public records request issue. So there really isn't even any evidence that NC State has made any public comments beyond responding to lawful public records requests. And then she takes this single statement from Gottfried's attorney, which really isn't of much consequence, and really spins it into much more than it uh, should be. And she is really, I think, struggling to draw attention away from the comments that the NCAA executives made that were really inappropriate. They were prejudicial, and they uh, showed a clear prejudgment and bias in these basketball-related cases. But before I, I get to that, I want to really set the table for how the NCAA thinks about this infractions and enforcement process and what its motivations are. And a, another criteria in this referral process that Cartwright talks about is it's at the very end of her nine-page memo, and it is titled Increased Stakes. There is a provision that says when you have a high-stakes case, then referral might be appropriate. And that is precisely how the Commission on College Basketball described these very types of cases, the ones arising from the criminal prosecutions in the Southern District of New York. There's no question that this is a quote-unquote high-stakes case, and the Commission on College Basketball used that phrase. For high-stakes cases, they should be run through this independent accountability resolution process and removed from the old corrupt system that was quote-unquote broken in the view of the Commission on College Basketball. But in analyzing the stakes, not just for NC State and Gottfried, but also for the NCAA, Cartwright talks about how serious these allegations are and the potential penalties, and she focuses on this $40,000 payment, which is really the crux of the case against NC State, and I've talked about that at length. But when she's talking about the NCAA's stakes, why is this important for the NCAA? Here is what Cartwright says, and this is a perfect setup for a discussion of what the NCAA's true motivations are and how they have just walked all over their own regulations and the rights of institutions just like NC State who are subject to their dictatorial enforcement and infractions process. So here's what Cartwright says. Similarly, 
This case involves increased stakes for the NCAA. As previously mentioned, this is the first, and she puts first in italics, notice of allegations stemming from the Southern District of New York basketball corruption litigation. That litigation has resulted in increased public interest in related infractions cases. It has also called into question the health of collegiate basketball and the recruiting landscape. So what is Cartwright saying there? The public perception is what's important here and how the public perceives the NCAA's response is the critical lens through which this entire process is run. And under Mark Emmert's leadership, the NCAA has had a monomaniacal focus on its public image. Mark Emmert is all about public image. And I think anyone, even Emmert supporters, would agree that his primary motivation is his perception, his image. And that is driven by his ego. And his ego has gotten the NCAA into a world of trouble. I want to go back to the Penn State case. We talked about that in some earlier episodes, but you had this case in, at Penn State, and everybody's pretty familiar with the facts there, where Jerry Sandusky, an assistant coach in the Penn State football program, had been molesting boys. And there was a pattern of that. And there was some question about whether people up the chain of command, from Joe Paterno to Graham Spanier, who was the president at the time, knew about what was going on and then purposefully swept it under the rug. And in connection with that investigation, you had criminal cases, then you had all kinds of extra institutional inquiries, and then a slew of lawsuits. And it was an institution's worst nightmare. This case was just a train wreck for Penn State on so many levels. But the question from the NCAA standpoint is, what's their role here? And in my episode on the Baylor case, that was episode, let's see, 52, what the Baylor decision says about the NCAA. And I did that on August 21st. Because remember, you had allegations of athlete misconduct and violence against women in the Baylor case. And the Baylor Committee on Infractions Committee came out and said what has always been true about NCAA enforcement and infractions and the scope of its enforceable legislation, that NCAA legislation didn't give them any grounds to come in and address the conduct that was at issue at Baylor. And the reason for that is that the NCAA's proclamations in its constitution about gender equity and athlete well-being and health and safety are nothing more than meaningless virtue signaling for public consumption and the enhancement of the NCAA's public image. But they can't enforce those constitutional principles because they only legislate in areas that go to suppressing the cost of labor in the big-time college sports marketplace and regulating the recruiting environment. This absurd competitive advantage, disadvantage obsession, and that all swirls around the talent acquisition market. And that's really all the NCAA cares about. So when they are acting in their enforcement and infractions authority, in these Mickey Mouse matters about free tickets and parking spaces and $40,000 payments, they have the authority, the legislative authority to actually do something. 
because that's the only area that they regulate in. But when it comes to these big picture issues like violence against women or violence against people in the community or academic misconduct, the NCAA doesn't have a leg to stand on because they don't legislate in those areas. It's one of the profound hypocrisies in the entire NCAA business model. And all of that preening around those constitutional provisions and all that preening around the enforcement and infractions process is dedicated to one goal and one goal only. And that is the NCAA's public image. And they believe that their public image is enhanced when they come in like the 82nd Airborne to enforce the sacred principle of amateurism and the integrity of college sports. That's really all they care about. They don't give a damn about the institutions that are ensnared or the individuals, notably the athletes who have their lives and careers ruined when they're declared ineligible or on the backside of enforcement and infractions penalties that fall on people who had absolutely nothing to do with the allegations that gave rise to the punishment. People who weren't even in school then, they suffer the consequences for the NCAA's public posturing and preening to convince the world that they are on the right side of justice and that they are at the ready to bring down the hammer on anyone who dares tarnish the upright mission of the NCAA. But I want to talk a little bit about this Penn State case because under NCAA legislation, just as in the Baylor case, the NCAA didn't have a leg to stand on in trying to address the misconduct at Penn State through its infractions and enforcement process. And I think they knew that from the very beginning. So Mark Emmert, on his own, unilaterally, as an imperial president, he just came in and he was convinced that Penn State was so embarrassed by what had happened there and by the public backlash and by the hit to its image and reputation that it wasn't going to contest anything that the NCAA did to try to penalize Penn State. So Emmert, on his own and in conjunction, actually, I shouldn't say on his own, in conjunction with Donald Remy, the chief legal guy who's no longer there, but he and Emmert were two peas in a pod and their egos just fed off of each other. But they just said to hell with the infractions and enforcement process. We're going to put together a consent decree and we're going to tell Penn State they either sign it or else which Penn State did. I think they were in a position of weakness. I, I think Emmert and Remy were right about this. They just wanted to try to wipe all of the consequences of this uh, scandal off the books and get them out of the media. And having a prolonged battle with the NCAA was just going to be another way to add fuel to the fire. So they just cut their losses on the regulatory side and they agreed to this draconian consent order. But on the backside of that Penn State case, there were all kinds of lawsuits. And one of those lawsuits challenged the NCAA's authority to go outside of its infractions and enforcement process and impose these penalties on Penn State. In connection with that litigation, the plaintiffs obtained some very interesting internal 
emails at the NCAA that provided a window into the way that Mark Emmert saw this and how out of control he was and completely indifferent to the NCAA's own rules and regulations and then the consequences of acting outside of them, brazenly acting outside of them. And I'll just say because of this lawsuit and the NCAA's fear of what might make it out into the public record. There was more there, I think, that the NCAA wanted to hide. But they settled the case and pulled back on some of these penalties, and it really was a bad look for the NCAA. And there were also allegations in that suit that the NCAA had an inappropriate relationship with Louis Free, former FBI director who was hired by the Penn State Board of Trustees to do this internal investigation. But there were communications between the NCAA and Free that were really not appropriate. And there were allegations that Free and the NCAA were conspiring to gin up this process where the NCAA would have beefed up enforcement powers and freeze private company that specialized in these kinds of investigations would get the NCAA's business. That was basically the the concern there. And that concern turned out to be well-founded because Free wound up getting some of that business through the creation of this independent accountability resolution process. His firm that he is affiliated with is now one of the three investigative firms in this process. And that's a whole nother story. We'll probably get to that at some point. But on the backside of that lawsuit, a group of Penn State University trustees had a report commissioned where they looked at some of the things that came out of that lawsuit. And it's called the Report to the Board of Trustees of the Pennsylvania State University on the Free Report's Flawed Methodology and Conclusions. And it's dated June 29th of 2018. And in its presentation of the facts, they have a section titled NCAA Conflict of Interest, colon, quote, image conscious. And that is a quote from emails that were released in this prior lawsuit. And I just want to read you a little bit from this board of trustees document because it's really revealing. And it gets to the heart of the motivations here in this NC State case and all these basketball-related cases. It says, documents released from the discovery process in the Komen lawsuit against the NCAA revealed that NCAA officials believed that the organization had no jurisdiction over Penn State and the Sandusky matter, but that they were motivated to sanction Penn State in order to enhance the NCAA's reputation. And then they go and they look at some of these internal emails that were produced. And it was understood at the NCAA national office that they had no jurisdiction to go after Penn State. And that what Mark Emmert was doing was completely outside of any authority that the NCAA had and that it was a big bluff. And the belief was, and it turned out to be correct, at least initially, that Penn State was so embarrassed by the scandal that they would agree to anything. And that's exactly what they did. And one of the emails comes from a guy named Kevin Lennon, who I'm going to talk about here in a minute. I think I mentioned him in the last episode. He's an NCAA insider at the national office at the highest levels. He's making over half a million dollars a year. He's been their go to guy. He testified in both O'Bannon and Austin, and he's out on the circuit propagandizing the NCAA's purity and mission. And in an email on this question of jurisdiction, Lennon says, I know we are banking on the fact the school, Penn State, is so embarrassed they will do anything, but I'm not sure about that. And no confidence conference or other members will agree to that. And then he says, this will 
force the jurisdictional issue that we really don't have a great answer to that one. <laughs> then in some other emails, and this one was from a guy named Gene Marsh, who was hired by Penn State to deal with the sanctions issue. He was quoted in some of these internal emails as saying that the NCAA punishing Penn State after the conviction of Sandusky and millions in, in civil settlements would be, quote, like shooting roadkill, end quote. And then an administrator for the NCAA's Committee on Infractions wrote an email about the comments back to this Marsh guy. And he said, for what it's worth, I agree. However, the new NCAA leadership is extremely image conscious. And if they conclude that pursuing allegations against Penn State would enhance the association standing in the public, then an infractions case would follow. I know that Mark Emmert has made statements to the press indicating that he thinks it would fall into some sort of loss of institutional control case. And then he says, shooting roadkill is an apt analogy. And then in concluding that section, this report says, these documents establish that one, the NCAA leadership did not think they had jurisdiction to sanction Penn State. Two, the NCAA leadership decided to proceed anyway, hoping that Penn State would acquiesce. Three, the NCAA leadership was motivated to use the Penn State situation to enhance the organization's reputation. And four, Mark Emmert made statements to the press that the Penn State situation involved loss of institutional control, the only avenue available for the NCAA to have jurisdiction in what was otherwise a criminal matter not subject to NCAA oversight. So I want to make clear that this NC State case and all the cases arising from the bribery case are in a much different setting because NCAA does have enforcement jurisdiction over complimentary admissions to basketball games and to $80 parking spaces and to $40,000 payments. They have jurisdiction all, over all that, you know, but the motivation is the same and it all revolves around the NCAA's public image, its reputation and Mark Emmert's narcissism. That's it. And there's no question that is the dynamic. And it's the dynamic that the uh, insiders at the NCAA national office saw in 2012. And Emmert became president in 2010 after Miles Brand passed away. But this whole approach, what you hear in Carol Cartwright's referral memo is the same language that Mark Emmert speaks. And it is the language of arrogance, of condescension, of my way or the highway, and that you simply can't disagree with us. Because if you disagree with us, you're the problem. You're the bad actor. So I want to have that context in place here as we go through the rest of Cartwright's referral letter and these two criteria that are really important in how the NCAA really operates and what its true motivations are. So we have these two remaining criteria, the perceived misconduct of the parties. I just want to point out in the NCAA rules and bylaw 19, that criteria is actually phrased as actual or perceived misconduct of the parties. And Cartwright just drops that actual thing because she wants to make clear that the conduct at an issue is imaginary. It's only perceived by NC State. And NC, this is the section where NC State is complaining about public comments made by NCAA executives in one of them in a forum provided by Carol Cartwright's Knight Commission. So Carol Cartwright's own misconduct is at issue here. 
So it's perceived. It's not actual or perceived. It is now just perceived. And that is just a subtle tactic. And it is a tactic of bias. It is a tactic of advocacy. It is a tactic of adversarial posturing. And then the other remaining criterion was breaches of confidentiality, as I mentioned uh, at the beginning of the episode. And both the perceived misconduct and the breaches of confidentiality relate to the same set of facts and the same public comments. So what I want to do here is provide some context and also read to you the rule that addresses public commentary on NCAA infractions and enforcement cases. So actually, let me just go ahead and start with that. So bylaw article 19 is titled infractions program, and it contains, I don't know, this must be 30 plus pages of dense incomprehensible regulations governing the process that, that applies to the infractions program. At the very beginning, it has some general principles. And the third general principle, bylaw 19.01.3, that Cartwright refers to, but only in the context of NC State's claim to breach of confidentiality. She doesn't mention it in connection with public comments made by the NCAA and by Carol Cartwright herself. But here's what it says. Public disclosure, that's the title of this section. Then it reads, except as provided in this article, the Committee on Infractions, Infractions Appeals Committee, Independent Resolution Panel, Enforcement Staff, and Complex Case Unit shall not make public disclosures about a pending case until the case has been announced in accordance with prescribed procedures. An institution and any individual subject to the NCAA constitution and bylaws involved in a case, including any representative or counsel, shall not make public disclosures about the case until a final decision has been announced in accordance with prescribed procedures. Okay, so what do you conclude from that? Now, we can have a discussion and parse that language and say the NCAA can talk about this after the investigation has been announced, the notice of allegations has been announced. And people subject to that investigation can't say anything until there's been a final determination. And there's still guardrails built around whatever can be said by the NCAA. And one of them is that they're not supposed to confirm or deny the existence of a case. Okay. So this is pretty clear, at least the spirit. And I think the express language accomplishes this as well. But this, at least the spirit of this provision is that you don't talk about cases in public and you don't provide any information that could tie a specific institution to an investigation or a notice of allegations. You just don't do that un unless you're doing it within prescribed parameters. And in no case before a notice of allegation has been issued to an institution or individual affiliated with that institution. And the reason for this, I mean, what is the underlying policy behind the prohibition on public disclosure? And it's obvious because of the consequences, the high stakes, these very high stakes that Carol Cartwright acknowledges in that criterion on high stakes. You have to protect the information and the confidentiality of the information because if it be is made public, if it, the investigation against an institution or individuals at that institution are, is made public, you have the very real likelihood that those institutions are going to be harmed. They're going to incur undeniable reputational harm by the mere fact that they're under investigation. And the way that the NCAA has criminalized this process, and that's an important thing to understand here, this is no less a criminal proceeding than the 
criminal cases in the Southern District of New York for the purposes of public perception. And the way that the NCAA has propagandized its mission and it has uh, used this process to label people who violate NCAA regulations as criminals. They have committed crimes against amateurism, a principle that is indefensible. And it is even more indefensible after June 21st of 2021, when the U.S. Supreme Court unanimously said that amateurism really is a myth. And they have pursued cases in the public domain, contrary to this public disclosure limitation, because they want the world to know that they are the only police force that can protect amateurism. They're on the job and they're going after the bad actors. This is all a public relations charade. But the consequence of that charade to the people who get ensnared in some of these Mickey Mouse investigations is real. And when the NCAA goes out and tries to set the narrative around an infractions and enforcement case, they are engaging in really dangerous behavior and they don't give a damn. Why don't they give a damn? Because under uh, NCAA versus Tarkanian, they cannot be held legally accountable for what they do in their infractions and enforcement process. But I just want to say one thing on this criminalization of NCAA rules. If this case springs up, if this corruption issue springs up after the Austin case, I don't think you're seeing prosecutions in the Southern District of New York. I don't think the FBI or any federal prosecutor could try to press charges and move forward with a criminal case with a straight face when the underlying principle that the judge in that case said was the epicenter of the entire case. It was the principle of amateurism and the NCAA's conceptualization of amateurism. And that's the issue that's on appeal now to the United States Supreme Court in the Gatto case. But Judge Kaplan's conflation of those two principles and those two contexts the regulatory context, and then the criminal context, what the NCAA did in this NC State case is even more egregious because now this connection between NCAA rule breaking and crime is being set in the public narrative. And the NCAA wanted to take full advantage of that new context as it existed in 2019 and early 2020. And so now I want to talk about these articles and some comments made by the Knight Commission and by Carol Cartwright herself. So the first article, this was an ESPN article, and it was dated May 22nd of 2019, which coincided with a conference that the Knight Commission held that was built around, in large part, this basketball-related scandal. And remember, Carol Cartwright, while she's acting as the overseer for the Committee on Infractions in these basketball-related cases, she's also the co-chair of the Knight Commission. So on May 22nd of 2019, Carol Cartwright is wearing her Knight Commission hat as an advocate and building a conference around the presumption that everything that happened or everything that was alleged in those cases actually occurred and that we needed to just clean up college basketball. And the Knight Commission, they're very good at promoting things. And I pulled from their website both the agenda for this conference and then a press release that after the conference. And I just want to read the first paragraph. It's actually a one-sentence paragraph. It gives you a sense of what this conference was all about. And it says, the Knight Commission on Intercollegiate Athletics today discussed a series of recent reforms made in response to the men's college basketball scandal and urged the NCAA to continue efforts to clean up the sport. 
So from that opening sentence and paragraph, the narrative that's set there is that the corruption is real. We have to clean up the sport and the, we're going to work with the NCAA to help them do that. And the problem with that is that is advocacy. And there are assumptions built into that advocacy that presume the guilt of the bad actors who were identified in the scandal. And in that capacity, Carol Cartwright is acting as an advocate. And it is in, in her advocacy position, which she's free to take. She can talk about the corruption in college basketball. She can talk about transparency in these shoe and apparel contracts. And they have some good arguments there. But she cannot act in that capacity on May 22nd of 2019, and then turn around and put on her Committee on Infractions hat for the NCAA and claim to be a neutral, fair, unbiased decision maker. It's ridiculous on its face. And there's a picture of Carol Cartwright right here in this press release. It's just breathtaking, the conflict here and the lack of attention to that because everybody was lathered up. The environment in late 2019 was one where Everybody was lathered up and the NCAA was getting pressure because the perception was that they weren't acting quickly enough. The media had spun this into a story that was unchallengeable and that everybody involved in this scandal was guilty and that this corruption was a clear violation of NCAA rules before a single notice of allegations had been issued. And the NCAA was responding to that from a public relations standpoint. And these comments that were made by NCAA executives and really by Carol Cartwright herself were in response to the perception that th things needed to move quickly. And there was no question about what happened here. Let's just bring the hammer down and let's start swinging it indiscriminately. And that was the very same environment that existed in 2012 in the Penn State case. When Mark Emmert went rogue, he just went on a wilding. And you have the same attitude, the same mentality in 2019. And so you have to look at what Carol Cartwright's doing here in that context. The referral letter, I think, is really speaks to the power of that dynamic. It's all about the public perception. But I want to talk briefly about these two articles, and then I'm going to go through how Carol Cartwright treats all, all of these issues that swirl around these public comments. So at this Knight Commission conference on May 22nd, 2019, Kevin Lennon, the guy I talked about earlier in connection with the Penn State case, an NCAA executive insider has been there a long time. Lennon comes out and he makes public comments to ESPN, to Heather Dinich, who's one of their reporters. And he says, we're on this thing and notice of allegations will be coming. Activity was going on during that span, the criminal case that was within our purview. But now that the court cases are done, now we're in a position where you're likely to see notice of allegations going to institutions that have violated NCAA rules. I think you can anticipate notices of allegations will be coming. And then he says it will be in due time and I think fairly quickly. And then this article quotes Carol Cartwright. I, I believe this is in the context of the NCAA adopting the recommendations of the Commission on College Basketball that give them these new and very powerful enforcement and infractions tools, the importation rule, and then these non-cooperation rules. But Cartwright says, in our view, the NCAA stepped up and we see real impact. 
We see what they are done and are impressed with the list that's been created so far of real action. So that quote suggests that Carol Cartwright has already uh, assumed the guilt of the people involved in this scandal. And she's all about cleaning up the streets and all about the NCAA using these enhanced enforcement and, and infraction tools to bring the hammer down on the bad actors. But what's interesting is that she doesn't mention here and Heather Dinich apparently either didn't know or wasn't pressing her on this. While she's making those comments, she's also sitting on the Committee on Infractions for the NCAA, managing all of the cases that are about to come out, including the NC State case, where the notice of allegations was announced on July 9th of 2019. And I also want to note that Dinich's article is titled, Notices of Allegations Coming After a Hoop Scandal. So. There's no question about how Lennon's comments were interpreted or, or Cartwright's were interpreted. And then on June 12th of 2019, there is an article on the CBS Sports website by a guy named Dennis Don. And he actually has written some, I think, some pretty decent stuff that's critical of the NCAA. But here I think he's doing the NCAA a solid in the way that he characterizes some of their obvious breaches of their own protocols and rules on public disclosures. But in this article, we get quotes from Stan Wilcox, and he's another executive in the NCAA national office. And unlike Lennon, Wilcox actually has some oversight for the enforcement and infractions process. So Dodd is laying the foundation for the scandal and giving some background and talking about what the NCAA is going to be doing about it. And remember, CBS is joined at the hip with the NCAA and all the March Madness money that runs through the Division One men's basketball tournament. This, I think, was designed to preview the notice of allegations that were going to come out against NC State on July 9th. And Wilcox is publicly preening to say, look, we're on it. Things are happening. Things are coming. And the NCAA wants the public to understand that it is on the job. So Dodd says, Stan Wilcox, NCAA Vice President for Regulatory Affairs, said two high-profile programs would receive notices of allegations by early July. The remaining four would be rolled out later in the summer in what was described as a wave of NCAA investigations meant to clean up major college basketball. And then he quotes Wilcox. The main thing is that we're up and ready. We're moving forward and you'll see consequences consequences. You can't have consequences unless you have misconduct. And Wilcox is leaping right over the misconduct and he's assuming it. He's presuming it. These people are guilty until proven innocent and you're going to see consequences. And this is on June 12th, just less than a month from the NC State notice of allegations. And then Dodd says, Part of his duties, is referring to Wilcox, part of his duties include overseeing NCAA enforcement. No discussion there about conflicts of interest. And then Dodd says, in a rare show of candor in such cases, both Wilcox and NCAA Vice President of Division I Governance, Kevin Lennon, have spoken out recently about the NCAA's intentions in the FBI cases. And then he quotes Wilcox, it's a great opportunity for the enforcement staff, the Committee on Infractions, as well as our whole community to try to put things back where they need to be. 
What does that mean? Well, it means that Wilcox is saying we have some pressure from the public here and they need to understand and have faith in the NCAA. And then Dodd talks about the criminal cases and this notion that NCAA rules are now federal criminal law. And if you violate an NCAA rule, you're violating federal criminal law. That perception existed at the time, as I mentioned earlier. And then Dodd says this, it is rare for any NCAA official to speak publicly about ongoing investigations. In fact, it is against protocol for officials to speak about a specific ongoing case. It's not just a protocol. That is an NCAA rule. It is just as much a rule as the no pay for play rules. So he says, it may be with such proclamations, the NCAA is sending a message that it is serious regarding what is arguably the worst cheating scandal in enforcement history. So Don's admitting what the NCAA's motivations are here, and they are breaking protocol. They are violating their own rules to speak publicly to convince the public that they are on the job and they are keeping amateurism pure. And then, let's see, and then he talks a little bit about these rules changes from the Commission on College Basketball that went into effect in 2018. Remember, in August of 2018, after the report of the Commission on College Basketball came out in April of 2018, you had this importation rule that came in. You had these non-cooperation rules that came in. So they were available even before the infrastructure for this new bureaucracy, this independent review bureaucracy, was in place the following year. So uh, they're talking a little bit about that. And Dodd says, the NCAA did change its rules, allowing it to take information from a trial and apply it to ongoing investigations. Previously, NCAA investigators had to develop information for themselves that had been revealed in court or by media accounts. And <laughs> who do we get? We get none other than Mark Emmert himself. And Dodd quotes Emmert. I'm very excited to see that process move around. It's finally the case now that we can take and receive information and evidence from other proceedings and directly import them into our investigatory work. And this is just classic Emmert because he just sounds like a little kid playing with his toys, his new toys. And he just wants to show everybody what he can do with his new toys. And so, boy, we're really going to be able to uh, do some incredible stuff here with all these new tools that we have. And it just is a window into the way that Emmert sees the world. And then Dodd talks about the NCAA's attempt to get all this dirt that was placed under seal from the criminal cases that the NCAA wanted to use in these enforcement and infractions cases. And as I discussed in prior episodes, Judge Kaplan denied the NCAA's request for all the sewage that came out of the investigation in the criminal case because of its potential prejudicial impact on people who were identified in some of those wiretaps and monitored emails and texts that had absolutely nothing to do with the criminal case and whose rights could be put in jeopardy by this information that he put under seal and prevented anybody from having access to. And so Wilcox is saying that, gosh, he really wants that stuff. And then Wilcox is clear to point out that the NCAA had, quote unquote, individuals in court during the multiple trials, quote unquote, listening to everything that was said. And then in regard to this entirely new process, the independent accountability resolution process. Wilcox says something that just falls into the you can't make this stuff up category. Wilcox says in terms of how this new 
process and the people in it, the investigative teams, the advocacy teams, and then the resolution panel itself would handle these cases. And Wilcox says, they could be more restrictive or less restrictive. I wouldn't want to be the first institution to go through that process. <laughs> so, and that's really important because there's obviously an acknowledgement there that we're Lewis and Clarking this new process. We have no idea where it's going to take us and how it's going to play out. And Wilcox is saying, because this is a new process and we're going to be dealing with important, substantial issues of first impression, he sure as hell wouldn't want to be the first one to run through that process. But there's zero forgiveness to NC State when they make some of those same arguments and are trying to say, look, this is big stuff. We're looking at it for the first time. We disagree with the way you're interpreting and applying some of these draconian provisions like the importation clause. And we need to just step back here and make sure we're getting this right. No, you can't do that when you're dealing with the NCAA. It's their way or the highway. And that was clearly the attitude they brought into the NC State case. But these comments are, are just indefensible under the NCAA's own regulations. Dodd points that out in a very forgiving way to the NCAA. And what you have to take away from this, and this is the bottom line on all these public comments by the NCAA. Their purpose was to set the public narrative in a way that had everybody believing that uh, the NCAA should be able to do whatever the hell it wanted to do to bring the hammer down on all these bad actors. That's it. That is the public narrative. And the NCAA is going to come riding in on its white horse and it's going to save the day and deal a blow to these bad actors who are spoiling the sacred concept of amateurism. That's it. That's the purpose of those comments. Now let's go to how Cartwright addresses all of those comments and the circumstances uh, around those comments. So we have this criteria, actual or perceived misconduct of the parties, and she truncates that to only perceived misconduct. So uh, Cartwright says, a third factor supporting referral involves claims by NC State and Gottfried that the Committee on Infractions is prejudiced by alleged misconduct by NCAA executive staff members. She says that both NC State and Gottfried allege misconduct by NCAA staff members based on generalized public statements they made regarding potential NCAA involvement in Southern District of New York-related litigation. NC State and Gottfried assert that the public statements signal a predetermined outcome such that they taint the Committee on Infractions' ability to adjudicate this matter. When, at the inception of a case, parties attack whether the Committee on Infractions can be impartial, an independent model is available and appropriate. So right off the bat, it's NC State that's the problem here. It's not these public comments that are a clear violation of the NCAA's own regulations that I read earlier in the episode under that section 19.01.3. I think that's what it was. And then Cartwright goes on to say, she talks about the May 22nd, 2019 comments where Lennon says that they're will be notice of allegations coming. And then she talks about this June 12, 2019 letter and only cites the comment by Wilcox that you'll see consequences. She doesn't talk about her own comments. And while she references the Knight Commission on Intercollegiate Athletics in connection with that May 22nd article in ESPN, she doesn't mention that she is the co-chair of the Knight Commission on Intercollegiate Athletics and that the purpose of that conference 
was in large measure to pump NCAA propaganda on how they're going to clean up the streets and come after all these bad actors. Then she goes on to say, at the time of the comments, the enforcement staff had neither issued any notice of allegations tied to the Southern District of New York related litigation, nor identified any specific institutions. On July 9th, 2019, NC State and Gottfried received a notice of allegations. Although public, these statements were not part of the record in this case until NC State and Gottfried attached the news articles in which they appeared as exhibits to their respective responses and raised fairness concerns. <laughs> Again, Cartwright pretends to be this observer, completely divorced from all of these comments and the context in which they were made, and that it's NC State's fault that she's even having to deal with this because they put these articles into the record as if Cartwright didn't know what those articles contained. And then Cartwright says this, although the Committee on Infractions does not pass judgment on statements about the system holding potential offenders responsible, in the proper settings, some review, comment, and education about the NCAA's infractions process falls within the responsibilities of the NCAA executive staff. And she drops a footnote that says, these executive staff members are outside the NCAA's hearing operations unit and have no responsibilities related to the NCAA or independent adjudicative bodies. So I just want to say a couple things in response to that. That kind of closes out her discussion of that section. And she says nothing. She doesn't quote the NCAA regulation that prohibited the very comments that she's analyzing here. And then she's defending the NCAA. She's saying that, hey, we aren't passing judgment on these statements as if there is this Chinese wall and she's on the right side of it. But that is a complete ruse. And Carol Cartwright herself has just walked right through that Chinese wall in both directions. She's just saying, well, we're not going to pass judgment here. But if we were to pass judgment, the judgment will be that these comments are entirely appropriate because it's perfectly within the purview of national office executives to talk in a general sense in an educational way about the infractions and enforcement process. That is just BS and Cartwright knows it. These comments were specifically designed to influence public opinion, to set a narrative and public perception, and to portray the NCAA as the victim, and they are going to come in and save the day. That's it. And Cartwright knows that. And this footnote about the Chinese wall is really ridiculous too. And she doesn't say who the people making these comments were. So she doesn't want to mention Stan Wilcox because Stan Wilcox does have oversight responsibility for enforcement and infractions. And this footnote is just factually inaccurate. And then Cartwright closes this out. The Committee on Infractions is not influenced by public pressures or NCAA executive staff comments, but the suggestion that the Committee on Infractions cannot fairly adjudicate this matter means no outcome will be credible to the parties. Again, trying to create the illusion that there is this detached, neutral, objective, unbiased climate and culture in the Committee on Infractions. And that is simply not true. So now let's go to the final criteria. And this is titled Breaches of Confidentiality. So this is the flip side of the very issue that Cartwright just analyzed. And she's talking about the NCAA's public comments and saying, everything's okay. No issues here. She doesn't cite bylaw 19.01.3 in her discussion about the NCAA's public comments. That doesn't exist. So she doesn't even acknowledge that there are any limitations on their ability to speak the way that they spoke. It's just their prerogative as NCAA executives. But when she gets into 
NC State's public comments, she's going by the book. She's going right to the rule book. So she says a fifth factor supporting referral is potential breaches of confidentiality. Shortly after parties submitted their respective responses to the notice of allegations, positions taken and confidential infractions materials were released to the media. The Committee on Infractions understands that some institutions are under legal obligations to produce requested information pursuant to Freedom of Information Acts. And she says the same obligations do not extend to involved individuals or permit public commentary on ongoing issues. So she's saying that outside of the public records request context, individuals can't release this stuff. And under no circumstances are individuals and institutions permitted public commentary on ongoing cases. And then she cites the very bylaw on public disclosure that I read at the beginning of this episode that she doesn't mention in her discussion about the NCAA's public comments. And she says, bylaw 19.01.3 expressly prohibits institutions involved individuals and any representative or counsel involved in the processing of the case from making any public disclosures about that case until a final decision has been announced. So that's the second sentence of that two-sentence bylaw. And she leaps over that first sentence. It just doesn't exist. This is just breathtaking manipulation of the record and of NCAA rules. And it's indefensible. And then she goes on to say, Despite the well-established prohibition on public commentary, the well-established prohibition, Counsel for Gottfried publicly attacked the enforcement staff and membership-approved infractions process, stating to the Associated Press that the NCAA broke their own rule when they considered evidence from a court case on appeal and then relied on that evidence to charge Mr. Gottfried with a level one violation. They should withdraw the allegation and let the court case run its course. Wow, that's a real attack right there. That's incendiary. And it wasn't Gottfried himself, it was his attorney. And then Cartwright says, breaches of confidentiality, including comments intended to set the public narrative around an infractions case, threaten the Committee on Infractions' ability to effectively manage and resolve case. Such actions could trigger disciplinary action. So what she's saying here is that the reason that public disclosure prohibition is in NCAA regulations is to prevent people who are part of the process, including NCAA enforcement and infractions people and NCAA national office executives from setting a public narrative, from manipulating public opinion. But going back to this Penn State case, that is the primary, perhaps the sole purpose of the NCAA's public preening on its enforcement and infractions process. And they don't give a damn what the rules say. And that is just reflecting what has always been true about the NCAA enforcement and infractions process and the, and the national office going back to the 1950s and Walter Byers. And that is you are committing a crime against amateurism, a crime against our authority, a crime against the purity of intercollegiate athletics. If you disagree with anything that we say or do. If you don't fall in line with our totalitarian approach to preserving our fundamental principles, then you're a bad actor, you're uh, a member not in good standing, and you are not playing by the rules. And that comes through loud and clear in this referral memo. I'll, I'll just close this episode out by bringing this back around to where things stand today. This is September of 2021. We're in a completely different universe. And what is reflected in this document, I believe still exists. And that's true in the way that this constitutional committee is, I think, thinking about its work, this Bob Gates committee. 
And then the Knight Commission has come up with some new recommendations that they just presented to the Constitutional Committee that are supposed to be these profound transformative changes in the business model. And we're going to try to tap into the football revenue and try to spread it around just like we do with the March Madness money. But those ideas aren't new ideas. Bob Gates isn't coming up with any new ideas. And the way he's characterized the work of the constitutional committee, it's really incoherent. You can't tell what the hell they're supposed to be doing. It's vaporous and it's meaningless. And Bob Gates has not identified a single specific change that this constitutional committee will consider or make. Not one. So I'm going to talk about the constitutional committee because really The purpose of this NC State analysis is to bring us back to the present. And one of my themes as I go into looking at how the NCAA is trying to remake its image and how the Knight Commission is trying to remake its image is that the cast of characters hasn't changed. We have the same people who created this mess claiming that they're going to be responsible for transformative change to make things better. It's going to be a whole new world and we can all pat ourselves on the back and move forward. But we won't be moving forward with new ideas. We're we're moving forward with a different disguise, but the same fundamental business model. And it is built around the assumptions that are contained in this Cartwright referral letter. So I don't think that the NCAA or the Knight Commission is really speaking a different language here. They're speaking a language that assumes the legitimacy of amateurism, the collegiate model, the student athlete. Although the Knight Commission is now talking about the educational model. I'm not sure what the heck that is. It's just another concept used to disguise the fact that the use of the term amateurism or the student athlete or the collegiate model doesn't have the same cachet that it did before June 21st of 2021. So you're changing the vocabulary, but you're not changing the fundamental orientation of your mission. And that is to protect institutional interests, not individual interests. And when the Knight Commission or the Constitutional Committee or the NCAA try to speak the language of individual interests, you can tell that it is a second language. This is a transformative change as a second language. And they just don't speak it well. And I think that's going to be apparent when this constitutional committee comes out with its recommendations. But I'm going to talk about that. But my concern is that these institutions are simply incapable of acknowledging what happened in the last year and the failure of the name, image, and likeness initiative and the fraud that was built around their campaign in the Senate to completely eliminate external regulators and then They slapped down in the United States Supreme Court and then all of a sudden conference realignment, all these things, all these things that seem to have imposed change on the NCAA and people swirling around its value system, like the Knight Commission, it's orbiting around the NCAA value system. Those people really haven't gotten the message because they still haven't come to terms with the fact that the entire world that they constructed is built around a principle that simply doesn't have legitimacy right now. And they just don't know what to do. And so all this splashing around in the water is creating some distractions, but we have to focus on whether it's changing the value system and changing the way that these people think about big time college sports. And again, when we have the same people who created this mess, coming and claiming that they are the only people who can solve it, we got a problem. And that's playing out right now in real time. So with that, I'll just close this thing out. I want to thank you so much for joining. It's always an honor and a privilege to have you. And I hope to have you back for the next episode of the Big Amateurism Monologues. Take care. Mm